Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about crabs. I think this will be the first episode in a, in a series that we're doing here, at least two parts to this, because the crabs are ravenous, and we're going to be talking all about crabs eating things. You know, this is kind of a holiday tradition for us. I forget how many years ago it was that we did uh, we did Christmas crabs. We talked about the crabs of Christmas Island as our Christmas episode. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so it feels appropriate that as we enter into the holiday season here with uh, uh, in November and December, that we should return to the world of crabs and the feasts that crabs engage in. You ever notice how the crabs come earlier every year? At least it feels that way. (laughs) But yes, anyway, this will be a feast day of an episode because it will all be uh, about crabs feasting, sometimes things feasting on crabs, mostly what crabs themselves feast on. It's funny how crabs are are a natural source of uh, feasting-related content. Uh, Rob, I I think you saw my note about this beforehand, but I discovered the strangest Google results phenomenon uh, before we came in here, w- what I found out earlier today was that when I do a Google search for crabs, it's a five-letter word, crabs, you'd think the first uh, result would be, what, like the Wikipedia page for this animal? But no, the first uh, result is seafood restaurants featuring crabs. They're trying to sell me mm-hmm. some crab legs and drawn butter. And then the second result is the is like a health node about pubic lice. And then finally, the third thing in the result is about the actual animals, the decapod crustaceans. <laughs> well, um, uh, after you mentioned this, I had to try it out for myself. Uh, and, and granted, I'm, I'm not going in like fresh. You know, I do use Google uh, quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, so that, uh, for me, when I did a search for crab, C-R-A-B-S, um, the number one hit is sponsored seafood content. But mm-hmm. then it's the wiki for the decapod crustaceans. And okay. then it's pubic lice in number, <laughs> at number three. Okay. Um, and then it's more pubic lice. And then it's some stuff about the crab nebula. I think video content about the crab nebula. Uh, and then it's back to pubic lice once more before rounding out page one search results with a Britannica.com article about decapod crustaceans. Okay, so as our top three go, basically Google just thinks I'm going to be more interested in uh, in in the lice than you are. <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, it could. I mean, we were both probably searching for crabs all morning, um, and and perhaps you yeah. know, uh, you know, days before as well. So it seems like. I mean, I don't know how these algorithms work, but it seems like they would have gotten in, into their robotic minds that these are gentlemen who are interested in decapod crustaceans, and we should serve them up even more of it. Guy, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it's all mysteries in there. Who, who knows the mind of the machine crabs that uh, that order all those results for us? Um, but it, I wanted to come back to uh, the, this uh, image in amber. So there was a study that uh, was just published uh, in Science Advances earlier this year by uh, Javier Luque et al., and it was called Crab in Amber Reveals an Early Colonization of Non-Marine Environments During the Cretaceous. So uh, this discovery concerns a fossil found in a piece of amber mined in modern-day Myanmar dating back roughly 100 million years or so, so squarely in the middle of the Cretaceous period, containing a remarkably well-preserved specimen of a crab bearing, uh, the author's note, large compound eyes, delicate mouth parts, and even gills. Basically, it's wholly intact. The whole thing is in there. 
Yeah, it's quite impressive looking. And the way that it is... Um uh, its body is positioned too. It looks like it is uh, like throwing up its claws in a defensive uh, position that we've all seen. I think, on, or if you haven't seen it in person, you've probably seen a picture of it of a crab like on the beach saying, "Stand back, mammal! <laughs> uh, uh-huh. Do not make me pinch you." Um, so it's as if through uh, you know across uh, this vast um, uh, stretch of time, the crab is warning us to stay back. With such ferocity that the very forces of geology like conspired to preserve this this uh, this stance it's doing, and mm-hmm. yeah, maybe I maybe I sound silly, but I give this image five out of five kolwahads. I am profoundly stirred <laughs> by this crab trapped in amber, and and not just because it you know it looks like that haunting mosquito in amber prop from Jurassic Park, uh, mm-hmm. but but there's something a little bit more to this too. Uh, because it, it raises these questions like how did a crab a hundred million years ago get stuck in tree resin to become part of a fossilized piece of amber? Uh, mm-hmm. We don't know the answer to this, but the researchers hypothesize, well, maybe this was a crab that lived a partially arboreal lifestyle. There are crabs today that climb trees as part of their lifestyle. So maybe this crab was climbing trees for some reason. Uh, and, uh, and, and maybe it's also just because it causes you to realize that crabs existed and were already beginning to come out of the oceans to move inland from the beaches a hundred million years ago when dinosaurs were at their apex. And I always love those realization moments where you have like, oh, yes, animals of this kind and this kind actually did live alongside one another, terrestrial dinosaurs and terrestrial or semi-terrestrial crabs. Yeah. And uh, Rob, I think you'll be very familiar with the 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 did they fight mindset, right? As soon as you imagine mm-hmm. that, the my sort of like eight year old boy's brain starts going, did they ever fight each other? Dinosaurs versus crabs. <laughs> I don't know how much of a fight that would have been, but I guess more more uh, relevantly, I could say, did they ever eat one another? And uh, you actually got to give you credit because you turned up the source on this for the coprolite study that found a pretty good case that, yes, at least the eating was going one way. Yeah, but the details of this I, I was surprised at because, uh, you know, not, not to say that, that some like smaller, um, you know, beachcombing dinosaur wasn't also uh, hunting and gobbling up crabs. But the evidence here uh, points to a, a different mode of consumption. Right. So this is a study published in uh, Scientific Reports in 2017. Uh, The lead author was uh, a professor, Karen Chin, who is curator of paleontology at uh, Colorado University Boulder's Museum of Natural History. And uh, so uh, this was by, by Chin, Feldman, and Tashman called Consumption of Crustaceans by Mega Herbivorous Dinosaurs, Dietary Flexibility and Dinosaur Life History Strategies. So this is a coprolite study, and you got to love a coprolite study. Coprolite, of course, is fossilized animal dung. This is dung that has become a mineral of the earth. Mm-hmm. And the top line on this is that uh, a collections of fossilized dinosaur feces from 75 million years ago found in modern-day Montana revealed that some giant herbivorous dinosaurs weren't always strictly herbivorous. Now, this would not be the first time a, a subject like this has come up on the show before. I think it was in our episodes on the Minotaur that we talked about evidence of bovines, cows and bulls and related animals uh, sometimes eating flesh in, in addition to mm-hmm. their mostly vegetable diets. Uh, but it looks like maybe something similar was going on with giant herbivorous dinosaurs. So these feces 
probably belonged to hadrosaurs or the duck-billed dinosaurs. And it looks from the contents of these coprolites like these giant herbivores sometimes would supplement their vegetable diets by eating rotten wood and crustaceans. You can tell by these uh, these remains preserved in the fossilized dung, which are full of wood fiber and crustacean shells. Now, again, this this raises these wonderful questions like how did this happen? Why? And you could imagine it's possibly some kind of accident. Maybe a duck-billed dinosaur is eating a rotten log for some reason, trying to get some kind of uh, nutrients from all this rough, rotten wood, and the rotten log just happens to be full of crabs. Uh, but to come back against that, against the uh, accident hypothesis, I just want to read briefly from the press release describing this study. Quote, the size of the crustacean shell bits in the coprolites indicate the crustaceans were at least two inches in length and perhaps larger, uh, and uh, this is according to the, the lead author, Karen Chen. Individual crustaceans comprised from 20 to 60% of the width of a common hadrosaur beak, suggesting it was unlikely that crustaceans were unwittingly swallowed. Uh, so the idea is it looks like whatever these crustaceans were, maybe they were crabs. Uh, we don't know for sure what they were, but there have been fossilized crab claws found from around the same area and uh, going back even further in time. So there were crabs around. These crustacean shells could have belonged to crabs. They were smashed up too much in the uh, in the coprolite to know for sure. But they could have been crabs, and they would have been big enough that it kind of seems unlikely they just accidentally went into the hadrosaur's mouth. It seems like the hadrosaur would kind of have to choose to eat the crab. Yeah, I mean, I'm also, it, for me, it just makes me wonder, like, what was the digestive system of a hadrosaur like? It was just, it, it's, it seems like a, an industrial processing plant, you know? It's just rotten wood uh, with all of yeah. these, 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 these fairly large, like, whole crustaceans and or their shells embedded in it. And you just, you just eat that down because you're still hungry. And it may not have been about just obtaining raw calories, like they may have been uh, searching for a specific nutrient like we see in some other cases of otherwise herbivorous animals sometimes eating, say, bones or something where they're looking out certain types of mm -hmm. minerals, maybe calcium or something. It could have been the case that maybe eating, eating crustaceans like crabs for the hadrosaurs was linked to the reproductive cycle. They may have been seeking to bulk up on calcium or something. We don't know, though. Right. But, oh, whatever the answer there, I just – I love it. So mega herbivorous or so-called herbivorous dinosaurs eating crabs or crab-like crustaceans 75 million years ago and uh, crabs 100 million years ago getting frozen in amber for all of time. Uh, it, it just it just fills my, you know, I got butterflies under my skin all over my limbs. It's like this makes me so happy. Yeah. It's, I mean, for the crabs, though, this is just another couple of pages in the history of the crab planet. Well, uh, right, because it all it raises the question going the other way, the one we're saying we didn't know if we could answer. But so it looks like some dinosaurs in some cases ate crabs or crab-like animals, other crustaceans. But the, the other question would be, did crabs ever eat dinosaurs? I don't know about you. I could not find anything, any evidence to directly address that question. As far as I know, there is no physical evidence anybody's aware of uh, to settle this issue. But I would say if we can't find an answer to the question based on everything else we're going to talk about in the series, I think I would argue that in the absence of any evidence, our default assumption should be yes. I believe so. I think based on what we know about the nature of crabs in general and the sort of things they do eat, 
it it only makes sense that that they would they would partake of dinosaur meat if they came across it uh, in their environment. All right. Well, I say from here on out for the rest of the series, we're just going to be looking at crabs eating all kinds of stuff. So, uh, so Rob, if you're ready, let's let's uh, begin the crab feast. Yeah, but like just like with human feasts, it's not enough to know what you're going to be eating. It's uh, it's also about how you're going to eat. Uh, you know, the, uh, so we should we should probably start there uh, with how crabs go about um, uh, consuming their various feasts. Right. So uh, crabs are, of course, a, a diverse subgroup of the order of uh, decapod crustaceans. So the decapod as in having 10 feet. They are crustaceans. So they're, you know, creatures with an exoskeleton in order to grow bigger. They have to molt. So they have to shed their hard exoskeleton and uh, come out with a soft one while they can rapidly increase in size and then reharden that. Uh, crabs, of course, live in all kinds of environments. They originally come from the ocean, but over time in evolutionary history, uh, like we saw with the crab preserved in amber, they started to move out away from the ocean and eventually into freshwater environments, and there are even land crabs. So as to the question of how and what do crabs normally consume, well, there are a lot of different species of crabs, and some of them have different dietary specializations, so there's no one answer to that question. But if you just want to sort of be general, overall, it seems like the majority of crabs are not especially picky. Uh, Many crabs appear to be omnivorous opportunists who will eat pretty much anything they can shove into their mouths. And this can include everything from vegetation, just gobbling up algae and fresh plant material, uh, leaf litter, to uh, to eating meat, of course, scavenging scavenging carrion, which crabs do a lot, or just getting little bits of uh, organic or animal detritus, to actively hunting live prey with their claws, which some crabs do. So as to diet, crabs are all over the map. But uh, the, the next thing I wanted to mention, this was new information to me uh, when, when I was getting ready for this episode. So animal bodies, you know, they've usually got some kind of special equipment to help them extract the maximum amount of nutritional value from their food. And this often involves either chemically or mechanically breaking down the food from its original form often to increase the surface area or the ease of access to nutrients by the digestive system. So there might be some kind of chemical breakdown as well. So, you know, you you know the equipment you've got. Humans have teeth that we chew with and that, that mashes food up into increased surface area. Uh, you've got gastric acid secreted by the cells in the lining of your stomach. Uh, but then, you know, there are all kinds of other strategies. Spiders will vomit digestive enzymes over and into their prey to uh, sort of reduce the nutritious parts down to a fluid or mush that they can then slurp up with the mouth. Uh, and they also do have a form of chewing with their jaws, which are called uh, chelicery. But crabs have one of the most glorious digestive aids I think I've ever read about. So uh, if if you ask the question, do crabs have teeth? I think the answer would have to be yes and no in a couple of ways. So obviously crabs do not have teeth like us. Uh, They typically eat first by using their claws to tear food into small chunks before bringing it up to their mouth parts. And then they usually have a a number of different moving mouth parts. These consist of uh, um, uh, these things called maxillipeds, also known as jaw legs, which are sort of like hands within the mouth. These are are modified uh, little leg parts that will sort of grab bits of food and pass them inward and onward to other parts of the mouth. Uh, known as the maxillae and the mandibles, which can further shred the food apart into smaller pieces that can be swallowed. 
But then, once the food is swallowed, it is inside the digestive system where the most amazing feature appears. And it's this. Crabs, along with other related crustaceans, have an organ known as a gastric mill, which is more or less teeth inside the stomach. They've got gut teeth. They can chew with the insides of their stomachs. And uh, this is another one that really got me. This is also worth uh, Googling some pictures of if you can, uh, because there there are some uh, some photos you can find on the Internet of like gastric mills having been extracted from the inside of a, of a crab's digestive system. And they uh, it's hard to describe how they look. They've, they've got the kind of they're like a semi translucent pinkish orange uh, uh, sci-fi weapon hood. I don't know. It's it, it but it's also kind of beak like it's very unnerving. I think one of the interesting things about uh, about the way a crab eats, and especially as evident if you're watching, um, say, close-up video of a crab eating, is that there, even more so with other creatures, this, there's this sense of meticulous um, disassembly. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the crab is not so much, I mean, it is consuming, but it is also just uh, just taking whatever it is consuming completely apart. It is disassembling matter and putting it into itself. Well, yeah, the crab makes you think about how much, uh, how much humans actually need to use tools for the kind of disassembly that they do leading into, uh, into eating, say, meat or something. You know, like, so humans devote a huge amount of their technological energy over the history of time into creating like, tools for butchery of food, cutting food into smaller and smaller pieces that are manageable, that you can bite into, chew up, and all that. The crab, they, they've got their uh, disassembly tools right there on their body. They've got the, the claws, they've got the, the maxillae and the mandibles, and then once the food's inside, they've got additional opportunities for chewing. You don't have to stop chewing once you have swallowed. <laughs> uh, so the way the gastric mill works is that it sort of chews the food from inside the stomach by grinding it between these hard parts, like plates or surfaces that are moved around by powerful gut muscles. And uh, so while I was reading about the gastric mill, I came across a really interesting piece of research from 2019 that I just had to mention as, as we're going along here. And this was by uh, Jennifer R.A. Taylor, Maya S. DeVries, and Damien O. Elias, published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B in, in 2019, called Growling from the Gut, Co-Optation of the Gastric Mill for Acoustic Communication in Ghost Crabs. So the short version of this discovery is that you've got this animal, the ghost crab, scientific name uh, Ocipode quadrata. And it will sometimes make a threatening sound by way of having uh, evolved, quote, a novel stridulation apparatus on the claws that is used during agonistic interactions. So uh, stridulation is any sound that is made by an animal rubbing pieces of its skeleton or exoskeleton together. The very common example you can think of is the sounds made by crickets or grasshoppers. That's stridulation. They rub parts of their legs or their carapace together, and that makes this chirping sound that is useful to the animal for some reason, maybe for maybe for mating or maybe as warning signals or something. The ghost crab appears to use this stridulation of rubbing its claws as a uh, as a warning sign, a sign that's like, hey, I'm threatened, I'm dangerous, I've got these big claws, you do not want to get near me. But in addition to the stridulation they make with their with their claws, uh, to quote from the abstract of this paper by uh, Taylor et al., quote, 
but they also produce a rasping sound without their claw apparatus. We investigated the nature of these sounds and showed that O quadrata adopted a unique and redundant mode of sound production by co-opting the gastric mill, the grinding teeth of the foregut. Acoustic characteristics of the sound are consistent with stridulation and are produced by both male and female crabs during aggressive interactions. Uh, so yes, they are actually, they can like chirp like a cricket with the grinding teeth inside their stomachs in order to have a redundant way of making this aggressive sound display that they do when they're being threatened. Wow. And uh, the authors actually speculate as to why they would have this redundancy, why be able to make this sound with two different parts of their body. Uh, They write, quote, a key advantage of using gastric stridulation over the claw apparatus is that it provides signal while freeing up the chele for postural display and attack readiness. So, you know, Mm -hmm. basically this this allows you to have claws out to be maximally Mm -hmm. visually threatening and maybe maximally dangerous if a fight actually does start while still making the, the grinding scary sound. So yes, anyway, crabs and related crustaceans, gastric mills, the chewing doesn't have to stop once you go down the gullet. And like we said, a lot of crabs are not very picky eaters, so who knows? Maybe uh, maybe if uh, you could be taken apart into small enough pieces, you would go down the gullet. I guess from here, we're going to start getting into the various meals of the crabs. You know, what do they use this, uh, this fabulous... Uh, uh, equipment for. And I, I guess that I was thinking that, that one of the best places to start would be talking about crabs eating humans, uh, because obviously that's going to be one of the most pressing questions to us, the humans, right? Uh, sure, it eats, but will it eat me? How delicious am I? Do I deserve to be eaten by crabs? <laughs> Um, and I, I think it's an understandable question. I mean, on one hand, like we are concerned with um, with this question with any creature on some level. You know, we have to have that 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 box checked off or uh, or empty. Will it eat me? Uh, is it incapable of eating me? Does it want to eat me? Uh, these are always questions that we have about other creatures in the animal kingdom and the various horror movies and animal creature flicks that we uh, we watch. They don't help matters either. Because on one hand, we have our giant crab movies in which giant crabs, uh, you know, in addition to occasionally wanting to take over the world or destroy whole cities, they want to grab people with their claws and either try to eat them or it's implied that that crab is grabbing you because it wants to eat you. Or in the case of Attack of the Crab Monsters by Roger Corman, not just eat you, but also absorb your soul and intelligence in so doing. Right. But then uh, we also have countless movies in which we see crabs scavenging, uh, you know, crawling around on the corpses of humans who've probably been dispatched by some kind of slasher or some sort of monster that it itself that it that is not concerned with eating the human. Uh, this is like a standard scene. And oh goodness, I was trying to think of specific examples and I, I couldn't come up with one. But I know I've seen it over and over again. Like cut from the you have a dark uh, scene with something spooky happening, an attack is um, is shown or implied, and then it's daylight and cops are discovering a body and there are crabs on it. Uh, I can think of two examples. One is in Jaws after the initial attack, attack at the beginning when they discover the, the body of the first victim on the beach. There are crabs everywhere and it makes the policeman okay. sick. Um, second one is uh, an even better movie. It is I Know What You Did Last Summer in which there is a part <laughs> where uh, 
the the 90s teen slasher movie where uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt finds a body in the trunk of her car. She did not put it there. I think she's being messed with by a killer and it's covered in crabs that are presumably scavenging it. Ah, so, yeah, and th- I think there are various other films. I feel like I've seen a, a, a Jalo film where there's there, there are crabs on a body. It's just, it makes sense. They're discovering a body. Put some crabs on it, um, and uh, and it'll make it a little a little creepier. Um, and and it, it, you know, it does, because it, it's like this person is not only dead, but now they are the domain of the crabs. Um, so uh, it, in thinking about this, though, it reminded me of a bit of, um, I guess it's folk wisdom, uh, that I learned from my mother-in-law, uh, and that is, don't eat crabs after a hurricane. Have you ever heard this before, Joe? I think maybe you and I have talked about this off mic, maybe. Okay, because I was I was looking around for more on this online, and I found some sort of echoes of it, but it I did not find enough on it that made me satisfied that this is not something that just originated with my mother-in-law or her family or like a, you know, a local area that like her parents were in or something. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'll, I'll continue to, dis- to discuss it here. And certainly if anyone out there uh, has heard the same thing or is, is privy to the same folk wisdom and has some insight into why it is, uh, well, obviously we would love to hear from you. But the notion here seems to be uh, that, okay, those crabs in the wake of a hurricane, they have been feasting on the flesh of people who died in the storm, and therefore they should be avoided. Okay, I can understand that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, I guess a lot of it comes down to the idea that if these crabs have been eating humans and we eat those crabs, it's kind of cannibalism by proxy, right? Right, yeah. And generally we don't eat uh, like a lot of, uh, even if we're eating meat, we're not eating carnivores or we're not eating uh, uh, animals that are, that are eating a lot of meat. We tend to consume herbivores. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're eating seafood, you're probably eating a lot of carnivores. Well, yes. Yes. The seafood uh, for sure. But yeah. Uh, but I also, I did find some, just looking around, I saw some people like asking in some of these like question websites saying, is it okay to eat? Uh, like they were kind of applying the same concern to just sea life in general. Like, mm-hmm. should I be concerned that the fish that I'm eating might have themselves eaten human flesh? Well, th- that's a sticky idea. <laughs> That'll get in your head. Yeah, yeah. So I decided to look into it a bit more. And I was looking, uh, first of all, I was looking at a few different sources in, uh, uh, they included Coastal Angler Magazine and also uh, editions of the Sun Sentinel. Uh, And so it's worth remembering that hurricanes are destructive, not only to humans and human civilization, but they also impact marine environments. This can result in extra dead sea life in the water, uh, and that includes crabs. Uh, And this can often be due to um, reduced dissolved oxygen in the water, rapid salinity changes, and violent surf. Mm -hmm. And this can certainly impact crabbing as a human enterprise, either by damaging the equipment that's necessary for crabbing or disrupting key crabbing locations. And this applies to other organisms as well. Um, It can, you know, it'd be especially rough on oyster seed grounds, for instance. And as far as oysters go, the other key issues related to hurricanes and other storms is flood runoff from the mainland, carrying various chemicals into their environment. And as oysters are filter feeders, they can pick up those chemicals um, and that can then be, uh, be pose a danger to humans consuming those oysters. Uh, mm. And, of course, there are other potential risks involved with eating raw shellfish as well. 
But as far as I can tell, uh, this doesn't really impact crabs so much. Um, but I, I wanted to look a little bit more about the, you know, the idea of of corpse eating crabs. So first of all, I wanted to sort of check my my assumptions on this and and find out. Well, is, is this true, or am I just sort of learning this from movies? Do crabs mm-hmm. want to eat human bodies? Um, and, and luckily, you know, there's a lot of, uh, material out there, um, in, in the world of forensics, um, and, uh, biology, um, a human corpse in water may be set upon by fish, water rats, crabs, um, various other creatures, according to, um, uh, one paper I was looking at by Zirin Urkal and Erdem Hosukuler in Postmortem Animal Attacks on Human Corpses came out in 2018. And so this applies to shallow water as well as deep water where crabs will, uh, may even gnaw the bones uh, that they find down there. Wow. Now, apparently some crabs are going to be more uh, indiscriminate than others. So yeah, I guess we, you know, we have to be careful when we talk about crabs because there's not just one type of crab. They're, they are multitude and they all have different strategies and different environments and different temperaments. Um, I believe blue crabs in particular are often observed to scavenge human flesh. And and that probably has to do, again, with like environments in which uh, law enforcement are finding bodies and bodies are retrieved. And uh, and that's going to happen to be the same environment where the blue crabs are active. Hmm. Uh, another type of crab that we've talked about on the show before, the coconut crab, uh, they seem to generally be game for, for anything. So it's, it seems like a safe assumption to say that, yes, if, if given the opportunity, uh, the coconut crab would feast on human flesh as well. But as for other species, I would say check with your local crab. I don't know if they want to eat you or not. Um, <laughs> and a lot of it's going to depend on are you where that crab is? Uh, what does that crab normally eat? Uh, and so forth. Now, I was also looking at an article titled Decomposition and Invertebrate Colonization of Cadavers in Coastal Marine Environments by Gail S. Anderson from 2009. And in this, the author points out that um, in saltwater environments, crabs, crayfish, and barnacles are generally the most important arthropods from a forensics point of view. And they point out that crabs especially will will just get right in there. They'll go for the facial flesh and the eyes. Uh, the open orifices of the face are, I mean, just think about this practically, Joe. Don't, um, the, okay. know, don't jump. To, like, if you're going to start munching on a human, uh, all those holes in the face, that's just a great place to get started, you know? Yeah, that's, the, that's like the, the oysters on a chicken. Yeah, so that's, that's generally where they, they start. But uh, once they get going, apparently they can rapidly deflesh a body. Um, I was looking around to see if I could find some hard numbers on that because I know a lot of times that is of, of key interest in forensics. Um, you know, okay, animals will do this to a body. Scavengers will do this to a body. Uh, how long does it take for them to do it? Because then we can time the, you know, the death of, the, of this particular individual or we can time when their body entered this environment. Uh, I could not find any, any times. That doesn't mean they're not out there. Uh, so if you know those, if you happen to ha- have like a, you know, uh, some sort of study that involves a stopwatch, a human cadaver, and a whole bunch of blue crabs, uh, then send it my way. I would love to take a look at it. Do your personal eco-friendly funeral plans involve crabs? <laughs> Crab burial. I mean, why not? Why not? So I want to come back to the question. Okay. Uh, uh, so first of all, okay, I think we can say it's safe to say that crabs definitely will deflesh the human form. Um, now, as for this idea of there being something bad about eating those crabs after they have tasted human flesh, um, 
I, again, I think there is this sort of um, you know, superstitious uh, view there. There's perhaps this uh, you know revulsion to the idea that you might eat something that has eaten people, and then you know to some extent you are engaging in cannibalism by proxy. Now, where this gets interesting though is when you start looking at the subject of cholera and crabs. Um, Joe, had you ever uh, uh, were you privy to any of this information before? No, I mean uh, cholera. I, I know cholera is typically a waterborne illness that is spread through uh, contamination of water sources by infected people. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and so when you think about cholera, you tend to think about um, you, know, you think about uh, sewage. You think about um, you, know, you know poor water treatment, uh, water sources, uh, that sort of thing. Um, but apparently, uh, crabs. And, uh, and some other shellfish can also uh, uh, be a means of acquiring cholera. Now, as, and, and I, I was looking around, and most, mostly when we're talking about this, we're talking about uh, some, some particular situations, and there have been particular outbreaks uh, that have been linked to the consumption of crabs that, uh, that are infected with cholera, um, or at least they have cholera like clinging uh, to the, the, the bacterium clinging to their their shells uh, to, to the hard parts of their body. For instance, there was um, an outbreak in 1978 in coastal Louisiana, and it was blamed on um, improper storage or cooking of crab. Uh, the cra- and the crab in, in question seemed to have uh, have uh, you know the cholera bacterium uh, clinging to it. Uh, p- apparently, there was a similar case in Texas. Uh, previous decades, I was able to find some news footage from uh, the late seventies from like uh, from Louisiana public television where they were talking about this, uh, and it was quite interesting because you know it, it was it was a big deal. There were a lot of questions like, well, okay, what's happening here? Why do these crabs have cholera? Why are people you know w- w- what's going on? And then there was concern over how is it going to impact the crabbing industry and just people's lives in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, it was quite interesting because you know to, to be clear, cholera uh, is is generally we think about it as a, as a human situation. You know, this is where you you find the the cholera. Cholera are patho- pathogenic to humans, um, so they're not actually uh, you know infecting. Uh, the, the the crustaceans in question here, but it would be a situation of them being in waters infected uh, uh, that, that are tainted by cholera, mm. or potentially, and this seems to be like a less firm point, it seems like potentially if you had these crabs coming in contact with the bodies of humans that had cholera, they could potentially get it that way. But it seems like for the most part, we're talking about just water that is, say, tainted by untreated sewage, and, and, and uh, you have uh, people in the population that had cholera con- contributing to said sewage. I see. So it seems like moral of the story is definitely properly cook your, your, your seafood. Yes, definitely. That's, that's, that's a, a proper storage, proper cooking. Um, and that seemed to be the, the main point they were getting to in this situation. I believe, based on some of the follow-up information I was looking at from the CDC, it seems like this had to do with um, with uh, with the, the pol- with pollution of the water, either due to some sort of a sewage situation, sewage treatment, or sewage uh, runoff from something else, potentially something linked to uh, to ships. Um, but uh, um, uh, looking also at the CDC, they point out, quote, brackish and marine waters are the natural environment for the etiologic agents of cholera, uh, vibrio cholerae, uh, zero group 01 or 0139. There are no known animal hosts 
for Vibrio cholerae. However, the bacteria attach themselves easily to uh, chitin-containing shells of crabs, shrimps, and other shellfish, which can be a source for human infections when eaten raw or undercooked. Now, I know what you're saying. You're, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, that still doesn't answer the question. <laughs> can, can, does that mean you can catch cholera from a crab that ate a human being with cholera? I'm still, I'm still not sure. I don't, but, but I, I don't think any of the evidence is pointing to that being like the primary way that you would get sick from, uh, f- you know, from eating a crab uh, or that has anything to do with, with concerns over eating crabs post-hurricane. So uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I can't ask uh, my mother-in-law anymore about this, but I, I have the suspicion that perhaps it's kind of a, kind of a, like a Cajun uh, stew of like a, maybe a little bit of folklore in there. Also, maybe a little bit uh, leftover stemming from this late 70s, um, you know, fear about um, cholera and the crabs mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, perhaps some other stuff thrown in there as well. Um, uh, and also maybe she was just, you know, messing with me, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, not being maybe that familiar with the ways of the of coastal Louisiana and so forth. Well, I mean, I would say whatever the base of this, uh, the, this piece of uh, advice or folk wisdom is. I would say that it's probably always going to be different. I mean, unless you're in some kind of like farmed Bond villain scenario, it's always going to be difficult to know whether or not a crab that you have actually acquired to eat, like what it has been eating in its past. (laughs) I mean, you just never really know if it had eaten a part of a human or not, but the odds are probably against it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and in terms of other crab, you know, just crabs in general, like eating humans, like another area to get into is, well, would a crab kill a human and eat it? And uh, this does come up from time to time. I think there was, a, you know, largely, you know, unproven and to a certain extent, uh, at least discredited theory that coconut crabs consumed uh, aviator Amelia Earhart, uh, or at least consumed her remains after she crashed. Um, again, I don't think there's any proof for this. And I, and I don't know that anyone's actually arguing that the crab crabs would have killed her. <laughs> But um, uh, you, you know, it's one of those things where you can make any kind of argument for, okay, what if somebody was sufficiently injured and then crabs came upon them? Could the crabs deal the, the, the killing blow? Uh, could the crabs be the one to finish you off? And I guess it's like with the dinosaurs. Like, could, a, could crabs kill uh, a dinosaur? Well, I guess so. If they had enough of an advantage, uh, you know, if the, if the prey was severely weakened. Um, but uh, I don't know. It seems kind of pointless to to worry about this too much. I mean, not to be insulting, but a crab is not really a particularly analytical creature, so I don't think it could size us up and figure out what part of the body it needed to attack in order to finish us off. Uh, We're not part of a crab's, like, natural, uh, you know, uh, habituated diet, so I don't think it would have instincts about what part of the body to attack to finish us off. So I would say if a crab attacks a human, it's probably just randomly pinching at whatever parts of the body it can get at. So my guess would be that it would be very unlikely for even the most powerful crabs, even your coconut crabs, uh, to, to really initiate a successful deadly attack on a human. But there is something about, maybe it comes back to that defensive display of the crab. It's so impressive, even though it's small, 
that it just reverberates through the human psyche and takes on the form of, say, crabs attacking Hercules in myth or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, crabs rising up against uh, humanity in, uh, in Roger Corman films. And so we just get, it, it just shows how effective that display is. We're like, we, we know that crab's not actually going to come over here and, and, and whoop us, uh, but, but it takes on these, uh, th- these enormous forms in our mind. Right. I mean, the, the rasp of the gastric mill does not lie. You, 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 there's no reason to go messing around with that thing, putting your fingers into its pinchers and stuff. But I am generally curious, though. So if anyone out there, yeah, again, if you've heard anything about this, um, this bit of, uh, of folk wisdom that you shouldn't eat crabs after a hurricane or that eating crabs that have eaten humans is, is, uh, is, is somehow specifically uh, a bad idea, uh, fill me in. I would love to know more. Before we move on, I just wanted to say about the the coconut crabs thing. I had also come across that people supposedly claiming that uh, that Amelia Earhart was eaten by coconut crabs, really without any evidence to say that. Mm-hmm. I think people were just kind of guessing. Oh, what if this happened? Um, yeah. Uh, but uh, but that did make me think back on uh, on Charles Darwin's comments about how coconut crabs actually being delicious and under their tails having that big mass of fat, which turned into wonderful limpid oil. You remember that? Oh yes, I do remember that. Yeah. Uh, you know, this reminds me. I was I was looking around, um, you know, doing various searches on fatalities related to coconut crabs, and I did find um, I think a couple that occurred. Um, uh, and but they they didn't have anything to do with crabs attacking people. They had to do with the coconut crabs having eaten something that contained a toxin, and then when that crab was consumed by humans, uh, it resulted in fatality. Oh, that would make sense. So I think, yeah, ultimately, crabs do pose the the greatest risks to human beings in the form of um, you know of, of tainted food of one sort or another. But that can be that can be said for a lot of things. It's as with our past uh, Thanksgiving episodes on dangerous foods. Um, you know, uh, any kind of if, if food is cooked improperly or stored improperly, uh, prepared improperly, um, you know, it's it's pretty easy to get into a dangerous zone. Oh yeah, I mean, one of the points we made repeatedly in that series is if you're actually just like tallying up edge cases. Uh, all kinds of strange things can seem very dangerous, you know, uh, uh, improperly washed packaged greens, uh, bottles of peanut mm-hmm. butter, I mean, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'll go ahead and throw this out there. Don't try and eat um, a live crab whole. Uh, I think you're probably going to hurt yourself. You may have to go to the, <laughs> the hospital over that. Yeah, don't go for the Hadrosaur Crudo. Yeah. <laughs> All right, the next example of uh, the next course in the crab feast I wanted to talk about is uh, maybe the, I can't remember for sure, this may have been the thing I was reading about that gave me the idea to do this episode. Um, And this is one where you can actually watch the video I'm about to talk about yourself, because uh, the, the subject here is a field recording that was uploaded by the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, or IMBARI, uh, originally captured in 2011. You can find it on their YouTube channel now. And this took place on an expedition led by a researcher named Peter Brewer. So the team here was investigating oil seeps and methane hydrates along the seafloor off the coast of British Columbia. Again, this was back in 2011. So this would have been on in the ocean off the west coast of Canada. 
And uh, methane hydrates are a very strange and fascinating phenomenon. I, again, didn't know a lot about them before I, I started uh, researching for this episode, and this has really captured my mind. So these are essentially chunks of solid icy material containing large amounts of methane alongside regular water molecules. So it's got uh, methane gas, or CH4, which is a naturally forming hydrocarbon. Uh, Methane is the primary constituent of so-called natural gas, as well as being a byproduct of bacterial decomposition of organic matter that gets buried down in the sediment at the bottom of the ocean. And Pockets of natural gas underneath the modern seafloor or just generally uh, any methane content in the sediment or the, or the bedrock below the ocean, sometimes uh, the methane in these pockets get exposed so that gas can escape up through little holes or rifts in the, in the seafloor and float away. But sometimes, under the right conditions, methane that escapes from these pockets does not just float away. Sometimes because of very high pressure at the bottom of the water column and extreme cold in the deep ocean, the methane gas becomes trapped along with water ice in chunks of this strange frozen solid. These are methane hydrates. And to be clear, uh, the, the name is a little bit misleading because methane hydrates are actually not a new chemical compound joining water molecules and methane molecules with chemical bonds. Rather, uh, methane hydrates are uh, what's known in chemistry technically as a clathrate, uh, which is a composite in which you've got molecules of one kind of substance, in this case methane, that are physically trapped within the crystal structure of another type of substance, in this case, water ice. So little molecules of methane stuck within a lattice structure of water ice. And uh, because of this unusual structure, methane hydrates can make a literally flammable ice. So you can have a big chunk of this stuff. It will look pretty much like regular ice. You can sit it in a dish on a table. But if you hold a match up to it, this is ice, which will catch on fire and burn. And for this reason, methane hydrates are sometimes called fire ice. Oh, wow. Now, it's generally believed today that large amounts of solid methane hydrates lie buried in formations underneath the seafloor all around the world. Uh, There's debate about exactly how much. Uh, According to a range I found given on a uh, a page by the U.S. Department of Energy Fossil Energy and Carbon Management site, there could be anywhere from 250,000 trillion cubic feet of methane locked up in hydrates around the world. Uh, from that 250 all the way up to 700,000 trillion cubic feet. And these hydrates contain a really dense concentration of hydrocarbons. Uh, A claim I've seen cited in a number of sources is that one cubic meter of methane hydrate would typically contain 164 cubic meters of methane gas. So a very small volume of this solid material, this icy stuff, the hydrate, if disrupted, will potentially release a ton of gas, which, of course, uh, is one reason that methane hydrates have people who think about climate change a little bit concerned, Mm -hmm. because it seems that there is actually a significant amount of potential greenhouse gases that could be released into the atmosphere locked up in these solid icy forms. And if something causes these solids to melt, a lot more stuff can be released into the atmosphere. 
but anyway, so these methane hydrates exist in these, you know, rocky, icy formations under the seafloor, but they can also form spontaneously when methane and very cold water mix under high pressure, like at the bottom of the ocean. So coming back to this video I was talking about, uh, the video captured by the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute team in 2011. Uh, so th they were doing a survey for of these methane hydrates and oil seeps at a depth of about uh, 1,260 meters. And the team came across a rift in the seafloor that was producing this steady little trickle of bubbles rising toward the surface. And while the researchers were looking at this stream of bubbles, suddenly, hey, here comes a crab. It just <laughs> – there's a crab coming into frame. And uh, the narrator of the video suggests that the crab may have been attracted by the pulsing in the water column at the site of the gas vent. But whatever the reason, this crab comes ambling over. It's walking along the bottom. And then it comes right up to the hole in the ocean floor that the bubbles are coming out of. And then in, in the first of a series of real awe buddy moments, it reaches out at the stream of bubbles with its claws. It's trying to grab them. <laughs> Very like, you know, dog, dog chasing its tail behavior. Uh, presumably it thinks that the movement in the water indicates some kind of potential prey or other food source. And you see it repeatedly lunge at the bubble tower with its claws, but of course there's nothing to grab. So it just sort of hugs the bubble jet several times. But then from here, things start getting weirder because again, what are these bubbles? They're methane. And what can potentially happen to methane at this depth and temperature when mixed with water? It can turn into methane hydrate. So the narrator of this video explains that the methane gas bubbles rapidly form into solid pieces of methane hydrate as they stick to the crab's forelimbs. So it's, you know, reaching out to grab the methane bubbles. It thinks they're food. Then they, the bubbles are freezing into a coating of fire ice on this crab's claws. And then... Trying to explain what happens next, the narrator of this video hypothesizes that the chemical reaction uh, that transforms the methane gas into these solid chunks of methane hydrate, uh, quote, may have given the sensation of something slightly warm and mushy. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I guess this is just supposition on, on the researcher's part, but the, uh, maybe what they're suggesting here is that the crab thinks, oh, I've got some kind of potentially delicious organic goo, maybe from a dead whale carcass or something, and it's all over my claws now. So, of course, when in doubt, try it out. Uh, you know, better eat it and see if it's good. So the crab begins to try to eat the methane hydrate off of its own claws, and this goes very poorly because the hydrate essentially freezes the crab's mouth parts or mandibles, which reminds me of that thing where, you know, you stick your tongue to a frozen flagpole like in that Christmas movie, except mm -hmm. I guess here the flagpole would be like stuck to your own mouth and it would be coming along with you. Uh, and the, the narrator of the video actually describes it as, quote, a milk mustache of solid hydrate. Well, now I'm, begin I'm growing worried for this crab. This, this, this is really taking a turn. I know. It, it went from like uh, kind of cute and bumbling to like, oh, no, what's going to happen to this crab's mouth? Mm -hmm. uh, and apparently the crab does whatever it's feeling. It does not like it at all. So it starts trying to use its claws to remove the frozen methane coating from its mouth. And you can see it scraping at the, the solid white mass of hydrate with the tips of its, uh, of its claws while shedding flakes of it into the surrounding water. 
And unfortunately, I do not know the answer to the question, did the crab ever get its mouth unfrozen? I, I hope so, but uh, the, the researchers uh, do not have an answer to offer on this subject. Hmm. On the pessimistic side, the narrator claims that pure methane hydrate is 20 times harder than regular water ice, uh, though I couldn't find independent corroboration of that fact. Uh, but on the plus side, like you can see in the video that the crab is doing a decent job scraping pieces of it off. Like it, you can see the flakes just coming off and floating up into the water. So I'm going to say with crabs, many things are possible. Maybe all things are possible. And I, I'm going to say that it really just, it, it scraped and scraped and scraped with those, uh, those spiny tips until, until it got its mouth parts free and went on to, to scavenge many a human corpse. <laughs> But anyway, I mean, so this is on top of being just a strange and interesting example of a crab eating something that was not food because, you know, I think anybody who has a dog will recognize that a lot of animals have the impulse of like uh, if, if something is ambiguously presenting as maybe food might as well put it in the mouth and give it a try. Mm hmm. Uh, but on top of that, it also shows an interesting thing that we don't usually think about being landlubbers, which is the role of naturally forming hydrocarbons as a part of the environment that animals would have to interact with every day. You know, on, on the seafloor, there are actually all kinds of ways that organisms regularly interact with, I don't know what you, you might call, the, you know, the constituents of the deep earth. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. from, from the ecosystems that form around hydrothermal vents to these weird interactions between animals and methane hydrates from under the, under the ground or under the seafloor. Obviously, for the crab in this video, this was at least a very uh, frustrating and unfortunate random encounter. But some animals actually have a much closer and more dedicated evolutionary relationship with these same substances, with deep sea hydrates, gas hydrates like methane hydrate, uh, there are actually marine biological communities that appear in some way to depend on methane hydrates for their energy needs. And just one example I wanted to mention, I found described in a paper from uh, published in the year 2000 in uh, Naturwissenschaften um, by uh, C.R. Fisher et al., called Methane Iceworms, Hesiosica Methanicola, Colonizing Fossil Fuel Reserves. Hmm. And uh, Rob, I've got an image for you to look at while I describe this here. But uh, so in this case, the story behind this discovery was that a bunch of researchers were conducting an exploratory dive with a miniature submarine in the Gulf of Mexico along the seafloor at a depth of 540 meters. I guess this was in the, the late 90s sometime. And they came across a large gas hydrate, a, a chunk of this stuff, the fire ice that was, uh, they said, about one meter thick and two meters in diameter. And they said it had recently breached the seafloor. So I guess this has been this had been some uh, subsurface for a long time. And for some reason, it had recently been, you know, birthed up from the, the bottom of the ocean and was now exposed. And this was a big old chunk of this stuff. And then the authors write in their abstract, quote, Two distinct color bands of hydrate were present in the same mound, and the entire exposed surface of the hydrate was infested with two to four centimeter long worms since described as a new species. And they said the density of the worms reached 2,500 individuals for every square meter. 
So this was a previously unknown type of polychaete worm that appeared to make a habitat out of these gas hydrates. It was originally called uh, Hesiosica methanicola. I think now it has a different name. I think now the genus is Sirso, uh, S-I-R-S-O-E, so Sirso methanicola. Uh, so you know, this would obviously raise the question, if you live around gas hydrates at the bottom of the ocean, what do you eat? How do you make a living? Well, tissue samples were uh, consistent with the worms acquiring nutrition from a chemoautotrophic organism. That would mean an organism that makes its own energy by consuming geologic chemicals rather than, uh, than by sunlight like a photosynthetic mm -hmm. organism would. And the authors in this study weren't able to prove anything conclusively, but they hypothesized that these worms, these new worms, were surviving by eating chemosynthetic bacteria that colonized the surface of the gas hydrate. So there would be bacteria that, that form mats on the surface of these frozen methane hydrates that would metabolize uh, chemicals contained within them in order for the bacteria to survive, and then the worms would eat the bacterial mats. And then uh, the authors write, quote, the activities of the polychaetes grazing on the hydrate bacteria and supplying oxygen to their habitats appears to contribute to the dissolution of hydrates in surface sediments. Uh, so I guess this would be one thing that explains how these hydrates disappear over time once they're exposed on the bottom of the ocean. Mm -hmm. uh, but, Rob, I've also attached a, an image for you to look at that's uh, – I believe this is a, a, a micrographed close-up of the face of one of these polychaete worms that lives on the hydrate. Uh, it is absolutely terrifying. It looks like some sort of a, a dark destroyer unleashed from a shadow zone. It has a kind of bristling fuzziness, which you would think would make it a little more cuddly, but actually makes it worse. Yeah, those fibers are not for cuddling, you can tell. And it looks like it has, has this enormous mouth to like just suck down dreams. <laughs> very, very true. And yeah, its mouth, I, I would say its mouth actually looks like, if you ever see those um, endoscopic images of, uh, of the larynx or the voice box? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It it also reminds me, it has the mouth of some of the more terrifying Muppets, I think, you know, where their Ooh, mouth is kind of yip just this uh, yeah. articulated bat. Yes, like the, the Yip Yip aliens. It has that kind of thing going on. Oh, God. The Yip Yips are so evil. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we're going to have to call it right there for part one, but you, we will definitely be back next time to continue the crab feast. What will happen when crabs put other things in their mouths? <laughs> will their mouths freeze? Uh, will they find it delicious? Um, you'll just have to tune in to find out. The world is a buffet and the customers are crabs. <laughs> All right. Uh, in the meantime, uh, yeah, certainly write in. Let us know uh, what, what your thoughts are in the, the, the crabs that we discussed in this episode. Um, but in the meantime, you can find other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, which you will find wherever you get your podcasts. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, we have core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. On Mondays, we have Lister Mail. On Wednesdays, we have Artifact episodes. And on Friday, we have Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and talk about a weird movie. Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 